Coming up on Golf Today, mayhem on Maui as Colin Morikawa unsinkable for three and a half days. Let's one slip at the Century Tournament of Champions. And who takes advantage? Big, bad John Rahm races to victory. What happened and what does it mean? A full recap of a frenzied Sunday coming up on Golf Today. Today. Golf today on a Monday. Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch. We've covered this game for as long as we have. You see some strange things on the PGA Tour and in professional golf as a whole. I would say yesterday, one of the strangest days that I can recall. I got to agree with that one. You know, there were people who probably thought the most shocking thing they were going to see this weekend was J.J. Spawn's untucked shirt and <laughs> the scandal that was going to cause. And then those last nine holes unfolded. And it's just a reminder of how cruel this game can be. No sport like golf takes you out on the schoolyard and steals your lunch money the way golf does compared to others. Paige McKenzie, I know you were watching as well. What was your big takeaway from what unfolded at Maui? I think a little bit of what you talked about, that this game can humiliate you and usually does at some point in your life or career. Uh, but on the flip side, you saw what was a charging John Rahm. And to me, that was some of the most exciting golf uh, that I've seen in a while. And what a way to start uh, this 2023 portion of the PGA Tour season. Yeah, we thought it would be a coronation. Instead, it was an absolute battle. Just to remind you, here's how the leaderboard stood entering that final round of the century term to champions. Colin Morikawa trying to notch PGA Tour win number six. Started the day with a six-stroke lead, and actually, it grew larger pace. So to the highlights we go at this point, Colin Morikawa absolutely cruising. This is the par four sixth hole birdie putt from about 13 feet. Yeah, you, you mentioned it started off hot. Birdies at the first and fourth holes. Uh, and that just continued what he'd been doing the first first three days. Yeah, maybe this is the first wobble. Par five ninth. This for birdie. And just scratching his head literally as to why that sneaked by. And meanwhile, John Rahm absolutely unleashing the hammer with the driver. This is his second at the par 412. Showing some of that death touch that we maybe didn't see as much last season showing up in Maui. And 14 after another huge drive, his second. Talk about a huge drive, yes. This is a fun back nine for the players, able to go for this green. Nearly makes it. Absolutely. 24, now just three shots back in here after a humongous drive. Just an eight iron into the par 5 15 was able to take advantage of the downslope to get his drive to that point, able to take advantage of this slope on the green to set up an eagle putt. From so many things in his golf game working well. We've seen some of the great drives, saw the great chip shot, but the putter was very much a part of this story. Absolutely trying to get some get back, as they say. This is calling at 14. Oh Long bunker shots are difficult, but that caught all ball. So now in a difficult shot to even hit a pitch shot close. So left his pitch shot to this point, now trying to save par. And again, those putts that have been dropping the first three days just left wanting on this back nine. And now tied with Rahm at this point. And now the par 515. This is the nadir of his Sunday. Uh, certainly. 
almost was able to get to this green and two just kind of rolled off to the side, ended up in this position. But again, uphill into the green. It's not an easy shot. Uh, to that elevated green, but terrible shot in the moment. Another tester for par. You can see the reaction. It felt like it was all unraveling. Disappointment there for the two-time major champ. Now the 18th hole, John Rahm, two huge shots, this from over the green. Par five, a lot of players able to eat it up. That whole location kind of everything feeds to it. But not not yet in, not yet in, Damon. But everything had been going so well for him that day. Started the day with a bogey, but this is 11th under par whole day, I guess, well, doing that eagle on 15. 10 under 63 for the man who finished runner-up one year ago. And after entering the day, seven shots back, John Rahm equals the largest come-from-behind win at the Century Tournament of Champions. Now, meanwhile, Colin Morikawa falls to one for three when holding the 54-hole lead or co-lead and earns his sixth runner-up finish on tour. Now, after the loss, Colin still spent some time with the media. Colin, we know how bad you wanted it. Um, what are you feeling right now? Uh, sadness. Um, I don't know, it sucks. You know, you work so hard and you give yourself these opportunities and um, just bad timing on bad shots and kind of added up really quickly. I mean, you know, I don't know what I have, you know, what I'm going to learn from this week, but it just didn't seem like it was that far off. You know, it really was, wasn't. And, um, yeah, it sucks. You missed in some really difficult spots. Is there anything going back that you would do differently? No, I mean, the, the drive off 14 wasn't that bad. I mean, I've been in that bunker. It's not like it's an impossible bunker shot. I mean, I, normally 10 out of 10 times, you're putting that to within 15 feet at worst. And um, caught it thin. Where did you feel like you started losing some of the control of the um, I mean, at that point when I thinned it and, you know, made that, missed that putt uh, for par, I mean, you know, 10, I felt like I hit a good putt, 11, I hit a good putt, 12, hit a good putt, 13, didn't hit a good putt, but, you know, you're going to hit bad putts out there, and so everything felt fine, you know, and um, you make a bogey there on 14, you're like, okay, you know, you got 15, you got 18, um, we're still in it, we're still right there, no problem, and then 15, you know, just push the five wood just enough, and um, knew he was going to roll down and practice that chip a bunch too, and um, obviously not enough. Colin, when did you start to feel John breathing down your neck? Um, you know, when we were walking down 12, I, I saw that he made birdie, and I knew I was still, I think, three ahead at least at, at that point. Um, and I knew I still had chances, and the game was feeling good. Um, but once I made the bogey on 14, and then you're walking up 15, and um, didn't see the leaderboard until I got on the green and you realize I'm putting for par to stay tied for the lead. Um, you know, at that point, you know, it's a little different feeling than what you had early on. The question will come out of this is, did Kalamon Marukawa lose this or did John Rahm win this? What's your thoughts? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, I mean, one under on this course is not a good score. You know, it's, it really isn't. You know, I was three under through whatever, six holes, three putted five as well. Um, he still shot 63, 
but I still, you know, I still had it within reach. You know, if, if I don't make those bogeys and I make par, we're right there, right? So, you know, he, he definitely made the birdies when he needed to, um, but I also made bogeys. And when you're when you're doing bo when you're giving bogeys at that time of the of the tournament, you know, it's they're costly. And uh, I definitely felt the weight of that. From a disappointment level as a professional, is this the highlight or the lowlight? Of my, yeah, of my career so far? I'd say so. Um, can't really think of anything else. Um, yeah, you know, it's hard to look at the positives. It really is. You know, Colin Morikawa has been in the record books for a lot of good reasons. Did not want to join this list. Largest final rounds lost all time on the PGA Tour. Greg Norman, most famously the 96 Masters. But as you can see, a lot of wonderful players have blown six-shot leads in the final round. Now, here's what John Rahm had to say following Colin's collapse and whether John felt bad for Colin. I don't know how to answer that without sounding very rude. Uh, as competitors... No, uh, I want to win. Uh, that's all I can tell you. It's I've been where he's been before, right? Uh, I've made a mess of, of a round before, and, and especially in amateur golf, I've done it before. I think we've all been there. You don't want to see that happen, really, ever. You want to beat everybody at their best, but if the best calling has shown up today, I wouldn't have won. That's all I can say. So I just uh, always wish the best for everybody, but at this moment, um, you know, it's it's something... Not that he needs to learn a lot more from golf, because we all know he's capable of, but it's something he's going to learn a lot from. From brutal honesty from Colin Morikawa and John Rahm with more on Sunday's outcome. Let's welcome in Todd Lewis, who was on site. Todd, you were there. Uh, it was swift. It was stunning. What was the experience like yesterday? Yeah, it was shocking. Um, I remember I, I was part of the broadcast and Tommy Roy, our great um, Emmy winning producer, said, hey, Todd, get ready to go interview Colin Morikawa's parents because he, it looks like he was going to pull away and we need to add some some drama and some theater to this because this was going to be Colin Morikawa's show. But obviously that didn't happen. You know, it. I mean, if you look at holes 14, 15 and 16, those are three of the easiest holes on this golf course. If he plays those three holes at one under par, he wins this tournament. He'd get to 28 under, and he would beat John Rahm. But instead, he played those three holes at three over, and it was because of his short game. You look at those holes, 14, that bad bunker shot, 15, that terrible chip up the hill, 16, not a great wedge shot, ultimately making bogey. He has been working with Parker McLaughlin. He had one session with him, um, and under pressure, that short game just didn't hold up. It held up beautifully prior, but when he needed it, it just didn't show up. Um, I will say that I respect and admire Colin Marikawa, um, especially after what he said, that sound you just heard there. He was he not only came to the microphone, but he was honest, tried to smile his way through it. You knew he was hurting. But if I was a friend of Colin Marikawa, if I was in his camp, I would tell him, hey, Colin, Jordan Spieth blew a huge lead at Augusta National and lost the Masters. The very next year, he won the Open. Roy McIlroy blew a huge lead at Augusta National. He won his first major championship and his next major championship start at the U.S. Open. Those two players are going to the World Golf Hall of Fame. And if you think about it, Roy McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, Colin Markawa, all three of those guys, heady players, smart, introspective, 
want to learn, you can do the same thing. Ingest this, eat this, learn from this, and I think you'll be a better player. Todd, Colin Morikawa certainly sounded borderline dejected, but fairly ruminative on what had gone on in those comments after the round. It's fair to say that losing a six-stroke lead is probably closer to the reality of professional golf than winning two majors in your first two years on tour is to the reality of professional golf. Do you think he has the perspective and the people around him to give him the perspective that this, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't really matter that much? Absolutely, I do. I mean, if you just look at what happened to him last year, he was struggling with his game. He became frustrated. I mean, that could sideline a lot of people. It sidelined Jordan Spieth for a while until he won at Hilton Head, uh, as I go back to him in reference. Um, but although he was frustrated, he had an incredible thirst to learn how to improve, how to elevate himself on the world stage. So he, he worked, he found Steven Sweeney, worked on his putting, and he putted beautifully this week until those last four or five holes. He's now working, as I mentioned, with Parker McLaughlin. Rick uh, Sessinghouse, his longtime coach, who has been his coach since he was a junior back in Southern California. Not only is he a great mechanical swing coach, but he's also a great mental coach, a life coach, just about, for Colin Morikawa. Has a beautiful vision on how Colin should be as a player and as a person. I promise you he's going to be in Colin's ear. And this is going to be a big challenge for him to help him bounce back. But Rick is a good guy to do it. And Colin, I, I think once he gets past this in a week or two, he'll be ready to absorb and, and be a better player. You know, Todd, part of Colin's uh, discussion, talking points going into this week was the, the gratitude and the thankfulness that he felt was mm -hmm. missing for a lot of 2022. How important will it be for him to lean on those feelings yeah. of gratitude considering he's been beginning the year in this fashion? Yeah, I, I think that's a huge thing um, is having that attitude of gratitude, um, that attitude of acceptance. Uh, I think that that's a big word that he used for me uh, when he was trying to describe um, how he was able to climb out of that bit of a hole last summer. And he's in another hole, maybe even a deeper hole right now. Um, but I, 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 I think eventually the fog is going to lift for Colin Marikawa. He's that kind of person, um, and he's going to gain more from this than people think. I think, I mean, this just, I mentioned Roy McIlroy enjoys me. I mean, he could be tougher after this. He's, this is an opportunity in my opinion, not an obstacle for him, uh, because he's that type of person. I think he will be better. Great perspective from Todd Lewis. We appreciate his time and reporting. As always, and Eamon, I have to say, I kind of felt that Colin Morikawa in some ways would be exempt from that type of collapse. And you might at home say, well, wait a minute, he lost a five-shot lead at the Hero World Challenge in the throws of trying to become the number one player in the world. I thought he would have grown from that and kind of put that into its proper corner and grown from it. Um, and maybe that's because he won two majors in his first eight starts. Tiger Woods didn't do that. Maybe it's because he won, or I should say, he made the cut in 22 straight starts uh, to begin his PGA Tour career, only Tiger Woods did better with 25 made cuts in a row. And it's a reminder to me that great players, as Todd mentioned, like Jordan Spieth, like Dustin Johnson, Calamity Thy Name was Dustin Johnson at the beginning of his career when you think of whistling straights and a blown three-shot lead at Pebble and a, and a long iron out of bounds in Sandwich to become one of the best players of this generation with two majors and six WGCs, not to mention 14 straight seasons at one point with a win on the PGA Tour. Where does Colin Morikawa go from here? I don't think it's as bad as everyone seems 
to be, be reacting to it today. I mean, I'm often reminded of this. There's a great old line in an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that says, there's not much between ecstasy and despair. And you get reminded of that quite a lot in golf. And even recreational golfers know how fragile your belief can be when you're trying something new. And that's where Colin Marikawa still is, particularly on the short game and the pitching, but also in terms of the putting and the belief in having more voices in his ecosystem, which he's not particularly accustomed to either. And the belief is fragile enough, but if you've got John Ram on your tail and he's shooting 10 mm. under par, then that belief is really going to be tested. And it's interesting, if you take a look at how Colin Morikawa played the, the last nine holes at Kapalua all week long, you find a, a very interesting fall-off by the time you get to Sunday because he started Thursday and he shot 30 on that back nine holes. He was seven under par. He shoots 39 on Sunday. And you can see how it sort of got... He was steadily under par. He dominated that back nine for the first three rounds. But where you see there in the final round, that's the heat map of fragility right there. And when you've got John Ram shooting 10 under par right behind you and swaggering into the ring like a heavyweight as, as he does, he's an intimidating presence. And Colin Morikawa, I think, just didn't have the belief. But it's not as though the week was a, a complete loss for him at all. No, I agree with that. And, and I did have one concern toward the end of last year. You did some wonderful reporting with him joining up with Stephen Sweeney and then later joining up with, with Parker, uh, was, is it going to be, now I'm thinking about how I go about my business. No one was talking about, you know, him missing putts or, you know, stubbing chips when he hit that great, you know, wood into 16 at the PGA. No one was talking about his short game when he was getting up and down from everywhere on that back nine at the open holding off Jordan Spieth. So it was natural. It was, oh, he's precocious. He's young. He's not thinking about things. So he said, I, you know, I'm, I'm adding the pieces to the puzzle. I've got my team in place. But I just wonder, that was my one concern. Now you're thinking about how you go about your business. Now you're, you're adding voices to your head where before it was like innocence. It was this, this youthful bravado, this confidence. I just wonder, you know, do you become more engineer versus artist when you start adding those voices to the team? Well, all we can say is that he's taken action on the weaknesses. Mm. And we can highlight all, all the great weeks he's had in his career. Mm. But that's not to say he wasn't always thinking about those weaknesses. And certainly in the other weeks where everything wasn't clicking together, you could probably assume a guy like Colin Morikawa was focusing in on what was the difference that particular week. Where yeah. did he fall short? So adding the voices might actually quell the voices in his head are offered direction because when I talked to Stephen Sweeney about working with Marikawa on his putting, he said the very first thing they did was to attempt to establish a baseline because Colin couldn't tell you why he putted well on Monday but putted poorly on Tuesday. Mm. And to try to establish a, a routine and an assessment methodology for how they're going about their business. So I, I imagine the voices were pretty loud in Colin Morikawa's head to begin with. This could actually be the attempt to offer some kind of direction or quell those voices of his own. And putting some of those changes, especially with the short game, into action at a golf course like Kapalua, which has some very uncomfortable chip shots and pitch shots around the green, that is definitely putting your game you know, under the microscope in the highest level of golf. For more, let's turn once again to Paige McKenzie. Paige, I know you watched it. Uh, what was your biggest takeaway from what happened to Colin Morikawa yesterday? 
Well, what I like about the discussion that we're having today is we're hearing the different examples of all the players that have played at the, the highest level that have all kind of had these stumble moments. And positively, we have a lot of examples that they've recovered. So I think to me, that's been the biggest takeaway when I look back and then potentially push forward to what is next for Colin Morikawa. One of my examples, I'll throw another one out at you, is Lydia Ko in 2020 had a five shot or six shot or five shot lead with six holes to play, ends up losing, hadn't won in two years. And ultimately, a year and a half later, is now number one in the world. So uh, this is exactly what happened to her. It was a similar short game deficit that plagued her coming down the stretch as par five chips it over the green to that point, ends up in the bunker, double bogeys the last, had a bogey on 14, 16, and doubled 18. And she was in a similar situation, trying to find it with new coaching. She had just uh, employed Sean Foley at that point, and again, now wins the season race on the LPGA Tour in a sense to number one in the world. So it can change. I think Todd and you had great examples with both Rory and Jordan Spieth having similar downturns in their career and then able to find it and come back and learn from those moments. And I also think that maybe it's just golf. You know, as many examples as we've had, as many different players, you throw Dustin Johnson back into it, maybe it's just golf. And I think even within Colin Morikawa's career, he can say that too. Go back to his first full season on the, L or on the PGA Tour, this in a playoff with Daniel Berger, the short miss that cost him what would have been his second PGA Tour win. Yeah, hard to swallow what just happened there. But he was able to come back from that. And in a very short order, just one month later, he goes to the workday. This is at Memorial. You remember Justin Thomas and him were in a playoff. Justin Thomas drains a 50-foot putt in the playoff. This is what Colin Morikawa needed to extend the playoff. And he comes through clutch ultimately wins the following hole on the following hole where Justin Thomas had bogeyed and he birdied. And then you're thinking, well, is there any other clutch moments? Damon, you referenced it, the 16th hole at the PGA Championship in August of 2020, shortly thereafter, uh, he hits this shot. So maybe it is just part of the fabric of this game is that it will humiliate you, but it also gives you opportunities to shine. And you also referenced last December, uh, 2021 December, he had the opportunity to be number one in the world if he were to win on that Sunday, carried a large lead, a five-shot lead, and had a, a couple double bogeys early in his round on the, the first six holes, which ultimately nothing was really on track through that day, ultimately didn't get the win. But I think maybe as many examples as we've come up with, not only with other players, but examples of Colin Morikawa himself, that maybe it's just part of golf. Sometimes you have flub chips and sometimes you ultimately raise the trophy. So I don't know whether we're gonna buy a lot into this or maybe it's just one more stepping stone in the path of Colin Morikawa. Great points you make, Paige. You have to think that all those qualities that we love about Colin Morikawa, the precociousness, the even-tempered you know, character that he is, I mean, he's gonna have to lean on those characteristics as he tries to get back on the bike. And it's also important to remember, I think Jack Nicholas and, and Tiger Woods are the anomalies in this game in not having blown great leads like that. And there's a very fine line between scar tissue and experience, and it becomes uh, a case for Colin Morikawa to determine where that line actually falls mm. for him.
But we're going to move on from Colin Morikawa's autopsy on Sunday and talk about the jubilant winner, John Ram. Talk about the keys to his success in Maui when we come back. Golf Today, brought to you by Wind Grips, the best grips in golf. And Bushnell Golf and the new Pro X3, the best just got even better. And by the Hawaiian Islands. Visit GoHawaii.com slash Malama. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We're always looking ahead on this show, this program. You know, it's Friday, but how about Monday's potential headlines, you know? Still two old newspaper guys at heart, right? I, I still read newspapers, not always in my hands, but on my phone. What's going to be the Monday headline from Maui? I'm, I'm going to go with Ram to Rory. Take that. Mm. I, to my point earlier, I think John Ram still believes that he is the number one player in the world. I think he's eager to prove it. He's had more wins recently. Than, than Rory has with the, the win in Dubai, the win in Spain. I think he's going to be really hard to beat over the next three days, and I think he wants to make a statement, not necessarily just to Rory McIlroy, but Rory McIlroy is in that position in the world ranking that John Ram believes is his, and mm. I think that's the statement he wants to make. Bingo, win for my co-host, Eamon Lynch, as well as John Rahm. Now it's time for Winning Moments, presented by Win Grips. Rahm picks up his eighth PJ Tour victory in his 133rd start and becomes the first player to follow a runner-up win, runner-up finish, I should say, with a victory. Now the following season at the Century Tournament champion since Vijay Singh back in 2007. And after the victory, Rahm met with the media. I knew I was going to need an extremely low back nine. My objective was to get as close to 30 under as possible. Right, That was what I had in mind. Colin was, at, I believe, at 27 under already before he even played nine. So I have to assume he's going to birdie the par fives, so that puts him close to 30 under. Right? Uh, so I just uh, kind of forgot about it for a second. Right, I just started playing 10, made a couple of good swings, didn't make the putt, another good swing on, on 11, didn't make the putt. And, then the birdies came in, and I realized after the birdie on, on 13 that, uh, you know, I, I had a bit of a chance, but I've never really thought about how hard or how hard it was going to be, right? Uh, if I'm constantly thinking about how many back I am, it, it can get a little daunting for, for anybody. An obvious question, but 
after last year playing so well, 33 under and not winning. I don't know if this makes up for it, but does it, it kind of feel yeah, like it does? does? I'm not going to lie. Howdy shot 60 under par in two starts here and not one, either one of them. That would have been a hard pill to swallow. Um, that, that, something just doesn't register to say that, right? To, to do that well and lose both times. So, um, you know, uh, I really, it, show, it showed, I had that image in my head right before hitting my turn to hit the pot on 18 because I was thinking, man, I don't want to give him a chance to just chip in or make a pot or anything, right? I just really want to get this one in, and uh, and I did. So uh, that definitely was in my mind. I'm like, I don't want to say 59 under in two, two years wasn't enough. Tell you what, John Rahm is the Liam Neeson of professional golf. You don't want that guy in your rearview mirror trying to rescue some kidnapped child and bring him home in the middle of the night. That's who John Rahm is. I love that this was a revenge win for him, and he talked about that. I'm not going to go two years in a row, shoot 60 under or something, and not come home with the trophy. He has this irritability about him, and now you add the weapon of the driver, which he just wielded with, with uh, almost impunity this past week at Maui. It is quite a confident presentation. But he is the guy you might want going looking for your kidnapped child in that kind of scenario, <laughs> Damon. There's something so intimidating about John Ram as a competitor these days. He's just a large, burly presence out there. And I'm seeing a lot of the old Brooks Kepka in John Ram these days. This kind of killer instinct. For instance, we saw there earlier when he was asked, did you feel bad for Colin Marikawa afterwards? And he was straightforward. He said, no, I wanted to win. He's a guy who's also looking for outside motivation a lot. We've heard these kind of sideways cracks about the Tiger and Rory tour as though he's not being consulted enough or not being mm. given enough due deference in his position in the game as the PGA Tour is remade. And this, this constant barracking about the official World Golf ranking as well, not unjustified mm. in some cases, but that's another chip on John Ram's shoulder and he's using it for fuel. He doesn't use it as a distraction at all. And I think that's what we're seeing with him now is he's finding the fuel where he needs to find it and he's proving that he's a complete player, complete mm. competitor out there week after week. He says he's the best player in the world. He says he's believed that since August, mm. which is quite something since in August, Rory McIlroy won the FedEx Cup and then he won again in October at the CJ Cup. But John Rahm believes he's the best player in the world and John Rahm's determined to go out every week and prove mm. that he's the best player in the world. Eamon, I feel like you predicted the headline and I feel like Paige McKenzie predicted how John Rahm would go about his business. Paige, you talked about the driver and the potential weapon that it could be what did you see last week on Maui? Oh, it was extraordinary. And, and I, this was the golf course that was going to allow any, any of these long hitter players and John Rahm being the best uh, in the world off of the tee to be able to take advantage. And that's absolutely what he did throughout this weekend. We saw a ton of it on Sunday. And I think when, when I think back to the beginning of this week and John Rahm, when he previewed where his game was at, he talked a lot about last season and how he was disappointed with certain aspects of his game. He said people were criticizing his putting, but truly, if you look at the statistics, it's not, it wasn't too bad last year, but the strokes gained approach. And what he talked about was not being comfortable with his irons. And he felt like he's kind of gotten that straightened away. Well, I think we really see the strength of the driver and the putter. When you do look at the strokes gained approach, this is from this week. So he wins the golf tournament. And in a field of, I think we, we started at 39, maybe ended up with 38 players in the field. He was 32nd on strokes gained approach. That to me is slightly mind bending considering how strong of a player he is, tee to green. 
But I think a lot of it had to do with actually how strong his drive was. And when he talked about, again, his last season, he talked about, just look at the proximity. I, I wasn't as close to the, the hole. That's why my putting stats were off. That's actually not true. His proximity was better. But it can feel that way as a player. When you get so far down the fairway, and he's gained over 10 yards through the last two years on tour, you're hitting shorter irons in. So maybe the pitching wedge is going not quite as close as he would have hoped, but you relate it to the nine iron, and you realize, yeah, it is closer to the hole, but you're using less club. And so it doesn't feel like you're taking advantage as much. So uh, to me, the strokes gain approach, while he's 32nd in the field, a lot of it has to do with the distances in which he's hitting from is so much shorter than the rest of the field because of the strength that is his driver. Uh, so to me, when I look at this week, it, it just shows the potential that John Rahm has if he is to continue to shore up those short irons because he's continuing to use that driver as such a weapon. You take that skill set, you take that chip on the shoulder, you take that thirst for history. Remember him winning the Irish Open and knowing that, that Seve had won the Irish Open. That's how he is wired. And when it is all working together, it's the best in the world. And if he's found the putter to go with that driver, yeah. that's a pretty combustible combination mm. in, in anyone's book. He's a guy you're going to expect to see contend in every big tournament mm. this year. It would almost be more shocking, as it was last year, not to see him in the mix for that. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. John Ram says he's the best player in the world and has been for months. The official world golf ranking says, meh, you're actually number five. Which one is closer to the truth? And the short game chef going to feed our curiosity. Parker McLaughlin is the man Colin Morikawa turned to for help around the greens. And we're going to hear from him as Golf Today rolls on. Golf Today. Today continues on this Monday. Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch. Eamon, we've been covering this game for a long time. Sometimes the unexpected happens. We know how difficult this game is, but sometimes the things we see, even at the highest levels of the game, are an absolute stunner. And it happens to all but the, the very pinnacle of this mm. game. I mean, Jack and Tiger remain the anomaly and never having suffered 
the kind of indignity that Colin Morikawa suffered yesterday. But I, I still insist that in the in the fullness of time, this is going to be considered a minor blip in Colin Morikawa's career. I mean, he he's won two major titles already. He's had a couple of, of painful losses, but perspective comes from losses like this. It's the difference between experience and scar tissue, and I think he's going to chalk it up to experience. Mm. Yesterday was a tough Sunday for the two-time major champ. To the highlights we go. Colin Morikawa, the par 5, 15th. This was his third shot. A very difficult pitch, by the way. It is, and if you're trying to bed in a new technique and trying to learn something new, these are the situations that will expose the level of confidence that you have. And Sunday afternoon on the PGA Tour is a tough time to find confidence. Yeah, and a bogey would drop him one back, a par 4. 16th, another par putt from seven feet. He would miss that. You can see the reaction just absolutely beside himself. Drops the 24 under, two back of John Rahm. And here's John Rahm now, the par 5, 18th. He rolls this one in, gives himself that little insurance, finished at 27 under par. Yeah, win number eight for the 2021 U.S. Open champ. Had been a runner up at the century one year ago, but able to get even a brilliant. 10 under 63 for a two-shot victory over Colin Morikawa. Now, Parker McLaughlin, the PGA Tour winner, short game chef, joins us now. Parker, I know you worked with Colin before Century. Just right off the top, how tough was yesterday for you? Yeah, I was. I was definitely, uh, you know, heartbroken as as a coach and as a friend, and and um, you know, just somebody who spent time with him. I was definitely heartbroken for him and. going forward. I think we lost Parker. We'll reestablish uh, the connection shortly. You could tell you're part of this team and it's a new, you know, I think they had talked before, but this is the first time that actually worked together. It's got to be hard to kind of have changes in real time set on a Sunday when you can be exposed like that. Yeah, I mean, it was a great old line from Oscar Wilde where he said that experience was the hardest teacher because it gives you the exam first and the lesson afterwards. Mm. And that, that's really what you see at, at that level of elite golf when you have a guy like Colin Morikawa who's proven himself to be one of the finest players of his generation already. Yes. And he's trying to improve technique in what he's isolated as a weakness, finds a teacher who is very accomplished with his students to help him do that. And then when it's really put to the test is in front of a worldwide audience in a pressure-packed situation where a major champion is shooting 10 under par coming behind you. Mm. That, that's a tough position to rely upon confidence mm. and belief that just hasn't had time to bed in yet. But, you know, if you looked at Colin Morikawa on the ninth hole, even during the, the final round yesterday, he had a similar difficult pitch shot yeah. from 42 yards, and he hit a beautiful shot that just spun in there and made birdie. So it's not as though this week was just one, or even that day, was just one negative after another for Colin Marikawa. It was, you know, kind of two steps forward, one step back. I, I thought it spoke a lot about Colin that he decided to meet the media. A number of players might have decided to, to just go right to the car and kind of deal with it. Uh, I thought it took well, a lot of... A lot of guys would have slammed that trunk. No question about it. And I think we reestablished our connection with Parker. You were just talking about your initial reaction to Sunday and, and the disappointment for Colin. Yeah, I just think for, you know, for, for me, I, I was, um, you know, it, it's one of those things where we, we've spent some time together. We've worked together uh, through FaceTime. Uh, last week was really the first time that we had spent any time in person together. 
And, you know, just getting to know him and spend time with him, uh, you love the guy right away. He's just a great human being, first and foremost. And so it, it, it broke my heart to, to see that he had to go through that. And, and me now being a part of his team, it, it broke my heart as well. So, um, yeah, I think, I think this is one of those things you have to see the big picture. It, it really is one of those situations where he did so many things well for 67 holes. You got you to gotta fix it and, and then forget it. Uh, I think Brandel was saying it last night. You got to fix it and forget it. Uh, forget those last five holes and move on because I really do think that there's huge things in store for Colin this year. Parker, how did the relationship with Colin come about and how did you start working with him? Yeah, so uh, his agent, Andrew Kipper, um, I, I've been in, in contact with him for, for a bit of time and, and he's he's been someone who's followed my my Instagram page and, and uh, he's always sort of, uh, reached out and, and touch base. Uh, I know JJ Jakovac for a long time, and I've known Rick Sessinghouse for uh, for a few years as I've helped the UCLA golf team as as Rick has as well. So I think it was just sort of the the combination of the of the few people that were on Colin's team that had reached out uh, to Colin and said, "Hey, if you're going to make a make a move and 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 try to get someone who specializes in short game, then uh, you should give Parker a try." You know, Parker, it's not the first time Colin has reached out for help. Uh, he had a 10-minute little short game chat with Paul Azinger on the way to winning at concession. What are you guys specifically working on? Well, I think I think that's one of the synergies about the whole thing is that, you know, Paul's uh, been a mentor of mine for, you know, eight years. And, and I learned, <laughs> you know, a lot of the baseline of, of what of what I uh you know, base my teachings on is, is from the things that I've learned from Paul. And I've, I've learned those things and I've taken some detours and I've uh, learned as I've gone. And so, uh, but a lot of the baseline is from Paul. And I think Colin had gotten a, a nice, a nice lesson from Paul and liked what he heard. And so uh, it, it's a nice little synergy there. We, we, we speak the same language, so to speak. And, and uh, I think there's some, I think there's some good things ahead. And I think Colin is already seeing, uh, you know, going 67 holes without a bogey around that golf course is, is pretty, pretty spectacular. So I think he's already seeing um, a lot of the benefits of, of what we've done. And, you know, it's just, it's Sunday golf on the, on, on the highest stage, you have to be able to trust in what you're doing. And it's just one of those things where it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a process We're we're one week into this thing and, and, you know, he was setting records as, as he was going throughout the week. So I, I'm excited for, for the year to come and to continue to try to build some great feels for Colin that he can trust under pressure. Parker, you mentioned Brandel's analysis over the weekend. He also made the argument that the, the forward shaft lean that Colin has that has identified many great iron players, including guys like Johnny Miller, can be a liability if it creeps into the pitching motion of a player. Is that a fair guess as to what you're working on with Colin? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think really the that left wrist that that you know we, we see him do so well with his full swing, which is why he's such an elite ball striker. And and really, you know, I, I'd probably say one of the one of the best ball strikers since uh, you know Ben Hogan, really. Um, his iron striking is, is just, you know, insane. So I, I would say that that left wrist motion is something that because it's so good in the full swing, it, it really hinders him in the short game. Um, and so that's, that's what we're trying to work towards uh, finding him the right feels to be able to 
get him in a spot where he can really trust you utilizing the bounce, uh, taking away some of that leading edge. And, you know, we just saw that shot on 15 yesterday. I mean, there's no, there's no two ways about it. That's a really difficult shot uh, straight into the grain uphill. Got to go way up, way up high and, and stop it quick. Um, and so it's, it, that's a, that's a situation where that old pattern is really gonna is really gonna present itself, and so you know we're we're really we're really looking to start engaging the bounce. He did a great job on on the on the ninth hole. He hit, had about a similar yardage, wasn't quite as uphill, wasn't quite as into the grain, uh, but you can just sort of see with that movement. Uh, it's it's just one of those things where, where we're trying to get that upper body going a bit quicker. You can see the upper body really move through this one fastly. Um, and it comes out with a beautiful, you know, beautiful trajectory, beautiful spin. Um, and so it's just, it's just, you know, it's like six holes later, you know, things change and, and, and the way that your body feels changes. And so um, the situation changes. And it's just one of those things where we're just going to continue to work, continue to grind. He's one of those players that, man, his work ethic is phenomenal. And um, yeah, I think, I think he showed through the first three and a half rounds how, um, how much of a dominant force he can be. And I think uh, it's going to be a great year for Colin Morikow. I'm, I'm excited to, to be a, a small part of his team. Parker, I'm old enough to remember a, a bunch of players, you know, mishitting a, a pitch shot or chip shot on 15. Camilo Vajegas back in 2011 did it twice. You're from Hawaii. Why is that shot such a difficult shot, the uphill, the grain, the moment? Is that a decel situation? Why do we see that so often? I think Bermuda grass is the one grass that every golfer despises. Uh, it is so difficult to play out of. And, and I think you just have to allow yourself a little bit of grace. Um, you know, that ball, that ball's, you know, you know, you're probably on a 10% upslope trying to hit that shot. Uh, the grass is all growing into you. The second that you uh, have any, any leading edge, digging into that grass it's just gonna it's just gonna turn out to be a chunk uh so it's it's, it's a really difficult shot um and and i think that every player you know that's probably one of the biggest comments i get on my page is how do i hit a, a shot out of bermuda grass and uh th there's no real easy way to do it lots of times you go with less loft uh less loft will always be helpful and and un unfortunately in that situation there on 15 you can't go with less loft because it's straight up the hill and you got to get some height to it. So, uh, you know, it, it's just one of those things. It's a, it was a difficult, difficult shot. There's no, no two ways about it, but, um, you know, I, you know, being a part of his team, I'm, I'm proud of the way he handled it. I'm proud of, uh, how he answered the questions. Uh, we chatted on text last night and, um, he has perspective. And I think that that's a, that, that that's something that's going to take him a long way. I'm curious about that perspective. Parker, I mean, I wrote a story about you last year in Golf Week. You're a guy who's won on the PGA Tour and you've seen some pretty terrible lows out there as well in terms of feeling down about your own game. What would you tell Colin Morikawa coming off that round yesterday? I mean, I, I, I told him that he's the man. I, I told him you need to just continue to believe in what you're doing. Um, and there... You know that I've been there. I understand what it's like. I I lost a six shot lead. I, I lost a seven shot lead on the Corn Ferry Tour 
Um, and then the following year, I learned from that and I ended up winning on the PGA tour. I had a six shot lead and I ended up winning by seven. So, uh, you, you can, you can learn from it. You can, you can choose to, to go the opposite way and listen to all the comments. Um, I think Colin's a smart enough guy where he's going to, he's going to learn from this. He wants to continue to grind and, and work on it and, and find the right feels that is going to be something that he can trust on Sunday of a major championship. I think that's the ultimate goal. And we've already seen great progress in, uh, in the little bit of time that we've, that we've worked together. And, um, you know, I think that these, the last five holes on Sunday are, are, are just going to be a blip on the screen. Parker, there's a reason why a bunch of PGA tour players and LPGA tour players ring your phone. You're really good at what you do. Thanks for joining us on this Monday. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, happy to chat, guys. All right, he's Parker McLaughlin, PJ Tour winner and UCLA Bruin. Right, now we go to a Washington Husky. Paige, your thoughts on what Parker McLaughlin had to say? I think it, when I'm listening to Parker talk, A, I, I think he's brilliant at what he does. Uh, I've had a chance to witness his transition into teaching from his playing career. Uh, and he brings incredible perspective to what already seems like a very balanced team of Colin Moore, that Colin Morikawa has surrounded himself by I also think you had the most salient question, which is this is just a hard shot to do. I had my pen out. I was ready to take notes because growing up in the Northwest, I'm not used to the Bermuda grass either. That is my nemesis. Um, so I think having more of the mental perspective, the, the physical changes will come. And as a player, more importantly, you just have to have confidence and belief that you're heading down the correct path. The only thing a player can get in trouble doing is going down the wrong tunnel, going down the wrong path, and ended up lost and not being able to find your way back. But for Colin Morikawa, having belief and confidence that whatever changes that he may be starting to make and may make down the road is the right direction, uh, I think he'll be just fine. And this will be, as Parker said, just a blip in his career. And it's also important to look at what else Colin Mark took out of the week. I mean, if you looked at his strokes gained ranks for the week, during the Century Tournament of Champions. It's not a bad week for him. He actually finished second in the field in putting and was in the top half of the field in mm. strokes gained around the greens. There are a lot of positives that a guy like Colin Markawa can take out of yesterday. The painful loss, well, maybe that just sort of hardens him for the next time around, as Parker just said it did with him. Yeah, the, the mental aspect of Colin Morikawa's game, he talked about that, having more gratitude and thankfulness, and that's going to be tested Right now, part of his post-round interview was, you know, how are you going to spend the next couple of days? He said, you know, I'll be in Hawaii. It's going to be a little bit tougher than it would have been, but he's going to try to enjoy himself. What a remarkable test this is going to be for him right off the bat. 2023, you've already acknowledged that you've, you were a little bit, you know, short-tempered at the end of last year, a little frustrated, and now you have this thrown on your plate. I mean, this is a pretty early daunting test for a young player who has accomplished so much. It is, but I guess if you've got to lick your wounds for a couple of days in Hawaii, the Ritz-Carlton Kapalua is probably not a bad place <laughs> to do so, right? Well, John Ram flew to Maui as the number five-ranked golfer in the world, and he flies home with a trophy, $2.7 million, and he's still the number five-ranked player in the world. Is he really the number one? We're going to debate that one next. Back on Golf Today Sunday, it was John Rahm who started 
2023 in epic fashion, starting the day seven back of Colin Morikawa and trailing by six on the 13th pole, finished with a final round 63. That's 10 under to secure the win after Colin Morikawa closed with 72 as Rom's eighth PGA Tour victory. And he has been playing some stellar golf's last five worldwide starts, three of them victories, also has a tie for fourth and a tie for eighth as well. Interesting though, the OWGR still ranked number five, but I'd say with a bullet. And after Sunday's win, he was asked about how he views his place in the world. You're almost slightly defensive at the end of last year. Like, hey guys, I won various places. I had a really, really good year, but obviously Cameron's number one, Scotty did, uh, Rory did. Like, I know you're a competitive guy. Does, does part of you feel like I want to reclaim my spot at the top of the sport? Oh, I definitely do. Yeah. And had they not changed the world ranking points, I would have been pretty damn close right now. Uh, at this point, I'm thinking, will I pass Patrick Kenley? Because since the playoffs, I have not missed the top seven. I've won three times, and I don't even get close to him. So I'm trying to understand what's going on. But uh, in my mind, I feel like since August, uh, I've been the best player in the world. I feel like, and I think a lot of us should feel like a lot of times we're the best. Early on in the year, clearly, Scotty was that player. Then Rory was that player. And I feel like right now, it's been me. Uh, anybody at any given year can, can get a hot three, four months to get to that spot, right? It's, it's the level of golf we're at nowadays. It's, it is what it is. It's, it's very difficult to stay out there, and it requires a lot of golf. But we're all working hard. I know, you know everybody's putting a lot of effort to try to stay there as long as possible. But to answer that, yes, I, I want to be back out there. Cause Last one here, Alex. It's, it's, it's something you want to do, obviously. But you need to play good and win tournaments, right? Nobody's going to give it to you. Feisty, even in victory. Time now for buy or sell. Paige McKenzie, you heard the man. Buy or sell. Since August, John Rahm has been the best player in the world. I'm going to say buy. I, I do have one small qualifier. It's the end of August. So once August was over from then on, uh, so that does not include the Tour Championship uh, in that qualification, I feel like he has been the best player in the world, given his finishes. What do I have? Six Six in a row inside top eight. That includes three wins. Uh, it's been solid all the way around. I felt like throughout last season, if you looked at his stats, you looked at the results, it was two plus two equals three. Like, it just wasn't quite there. And since the Tour Championship ended, it felt like all the pieces have fallen together and the results are showing. What do you think, Eamon? Are you with Paige McKenzie? Are you buying John Rahm, Liam Neeson? best player in the world. I'm partially buying. I agree with Paige. I do think he's the best player in the world right now. I think the results have shown that. I, I don't think he's been the best player in the world for as long as he says he has. I wouldn't put it all the way back to last August. I mean, you even just go back to October when Rory McIlroy played so well and won the CJ Cup at Congaree Golf Club in, in South Carolina. He was indisputably leading the conversation as the best player in the world coming off that FedEx Cup victory. But John Ram's performance since then... I, I would say he's certainly the hottest player in the world right now, arguably the best player in the world. I, I just find it fascinating that he's so bent out of shape about the world rankings because the world rankings don't just adjudicate how well you play, it's who you play against. That is what's changed in the world rankings. So he, he got 37 world ranking points for that victory at the Century Tournament of Champions because it was against such a stout field. Whereas when he won the DP World Tour Championship, he got 21 points. When he won the Spanish Open against a fairly weak field, he got 14 world ranking mm. points. He actually got more world ranking points for finishing T2 
the BMW Championship at Wentworth than he did for winning the Spanish Open. It's possible you can argue the world ranking has kind of overcorrected for small fields and yeah. trying to figure out how to fully adjudicate the points on that. But the world rankings are not conspiring against John Ram. <laughs> That's why it's part of the reason why he's playing so well. I think it's because that chip on his shoulder. Listen, I walked away from Whistling Straight saying he was the best player in the game, but right now I have to give the nod to Rory McIlroy. Rory's last six worldwide starts, how about no finishes outside of fourth? I mean, look at this tour championship, taking apart Scotty Scheffler. BMW PGAO so close to Shane Lowry, Italian Open. Dunhill links, wins the CJ Cup, as you mentioned, fourth the DP World Tour Championship. I'm seeing John Rahm and Rory McIlroy almost as a latter-day Seve and Nick Faldo. I think they'll be old men. They'll be, they'll be hugging and crying in, in their 40s at, at Ryder Cups when they win together. But there's a little bit of, of, of battling going on between these two. And I can't wait to see them, you know, whether it's going to be Phoenix or the next designated event and throughout the spring see these two Brahma Bulls alpha males side by side head to head. I think that John Rahm is a very dangerous player Paige McKenzie but right now I think the way Rory is playing it's almost like we, we have to see Rory back inside of the ropes before I'm going to give the throne and the crown to John Rahm. And I feel like you and I are very close to agreeing, even though we seem like we're opposites, because I noticed you included the Tour Championship in your evaluation, whereas I exempted that and did September on. So I think there's a little bit of that. And then when you look at the world ranking points, as Eamon pointed out, 37 points for Rom for Tour Tournament of Champions this last week. Go to the CJ Cup where Rory won that full field event, 45 points. So you can, again, talk about where should the points be weighted mm. when you talk about full field versus small field and the quality of field that is there. So I think we're going to have a little bit of that discussion as well. But I, I love the fact that we're having this conversation. I see the future the same way you, Damon, also see it that this could be very much a long time I'm not going to call it a rivalry, but a companionship out on the PGA Tour where we're going to see some spirited back and forth. And it's also interesting to see how the top guys distinguish th their victories. They, they clearly, without saying it, they clearly believe that it's a lot tougher for them to beat one other elite guy than it is to beat 50 journeymen. Yes. And, and they're, they're too polite to say it, but that's why they want more given to the idea of, of beating a very strong field that just happens mm. to be a smaller field. But whichever one of them is number one in the world, I, I just can't wait until we get to the WM Phoenix Open a few weeks from now when both of them are going to be in the field together. What these changes are all about, getting the best players in the world to compete against each other more often. How about our social question of the day? We want you to weigh in, agree or disagree. John Rahm is currently fifth in the world, but is he the best player in the world? And we actually have some responses. Folks are weighing in hot and heavy TV saying not yet. Rory, listening to me, is still the man. You think that's Rory's Four. burner account? It could be. Sometimes professional athletes have them. Don't hug me, bro, says who knows? Top 25 or so, pretty interchangeable. Just like us rabid recreational golfers, people get hot for a month or two or even a year. The best of the best do it. For a decade or two, JT, Jordan, Rory, Scotty, DJ, Colin, Rom, Cams, Vic, Sung, they're all top of the game. Don't hug me, bro. Taking it deep. How about this is uh, David Irvin. What's he have to say, Eamon? Number one or number five, who knows? 
All modern golfers should just be compared to Tiger. That's an interesting one. You just, where are you in relation to Tiger? How many notches below the goat are you? <laughs> the several. Where does Rom stand on the wood scale? I guess TBD. Still to come on Golf Today, Todd Lewis is back on the show with some new details from a recent players meeting with Commissioner Jay Monahan. What are the players saying about the future of the tour and when we might see an official fall schedule? That's next. Back on golf today, the Century Tournament of Champions was the first of 17 designated events in 2023. These events feature elevated purses and commitments from the PGA Tour's top players. Commissioner Jay Monahan was on site this week at Kapalua meeting with players as the tour's 2023 season ramps up. Todd Lewis filed a report on the tour's plans going forward. Because of the lawsuits that are pending between Live Golf and the PGA Tour, Jay Monahan didn't really have much to say in regards to the tour's competitive battle with Live Golf. He did say that 2022 was a tumultuous year for him. However, he also pivoted in the fact that he took several players, the large majority of players in the field here at the Century Tournament of Champions, out to dinner on Friday night. And after talking with those players, he's under the impression that all of them are committed to playing on the PGA Tour. He also said that he wasn't surprised that Augusta National allowed live golfers to compete in the Masters this spring, and he's interested to see what happens with the major championships moving forward. There are some other challenges for Monaghan and the PGA Tour outside of Live Golf, one being the fall schedule. It has yet to be set. There are some pieces in motion. Monaghan is expected to have that fall schedule out at the players or maybe even before the players. The other thing that's interesting that's going to happen in 2023, the RNA and the USGA will conclude likely their distance report. Will those organizations decide to roll back equipment, roll back the ball, or, or maybe both? And what will the PGA Tour do in response to that distance report? The tour has given plenty of data to both the USGA and the RNA for that report. But I will say in that meeting today, Monaghan was not in a defensive posture. He was very upbeat, very excited about this being the very first dedicated event and the 16 to follow. And he said, quote, in regards to the PGA Tour model, it's as strong as it's ever been. Todd Lewis filing that report and the commissioner clearly projecting confidence as this 2023 season continues. What are your thoughts on kind of where the PGA Tour is in terms of its strength, this kind of protection against live golf? I still think that this is going to be kind of the focal point of the remainder of Jay Monahan's tenure, at least for the next couple of years. I don't think you can can rest on on the achievements of the designated events. I, I still feel like there's probably going to be a lot of work to do to protect the PGA Tour. Yeah, there's a lot more to play out in, in this game between Live Golf and the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour, for that matter. But it was interesting to hear Todd say that Jay Monaghan's under the impression that these guys are committed to the PGA Tour because this time last year, if you go back to the week of Riviera last year, we heard one player after another step up to the sure. microphone and say they're loyal to the PGA Tour and almost every one of those players is now at Live Golf. So the what their word is worth versus what their actions are worth kind of remains to be seen with a lot of these guys. But Jay Monahan still has a, an onerous task ahead of him yeah. in terms of bridging what the top 20 want and what the bottom 220 are willing to concede. Because it is fundamentally still a member organization and Jay Monahan is answerable 
to all of them. And the, the top 20 are always going to want more. Yeah. And that's the fall schedule is very relevant to what is happening and what is given and what opportunities are given to the lower orders of the PGA Tour. And I, I think he's going to find it more difficult than perhaps we've seen so far to actually bridge that divide on the tour. I think you're right. This has really been kind of a familiar storyline throughout the history of professional golf. For a time, Ben Hogan only wanted a certain number of places to even be paid, top 20 or, or so. You know, Tiger had his requests and wants. Phil Mickelson back in the day. And now we have a situation where, for the survival of the PGA Tour, the players, Rory, Tiger, have had to come together to do whatever they can to protect their flank. And that has made this a bit of a schism. That's why I think there's been a change in terminology from elevated event to designated event because you don't want to create a situation where the events that aren't designated are feeling somehow less than and that the players from 100 to 150 are somehow feeling less than. And this is ultimately what it's going to come down to. Jay Monaghan can say the business model of the PGA Tour is strong, which it is, but what it really comes down to is whether or not the governance model mm. needs to change and whether or not it ought to be driven around the guys who drive the business at the top or answerable to the guys who've never sold a ticket at the bottom. That's Still, the question he's got to figure so out. So much to be decided. Well, coming up, he was the head professional at one of America's most famous golf courses. Now he's producing some pretty cool art. We'll talk to Chandler Withington next. Back on Golf Today, coming in September to Golf Channel and NBC, the Ryder Cup heads to Italy. Marco Simone Golf Club as the United States will look to capture the Ryder Cup for the first time on European soil since 1993. Let's flash back to the 2016 Ryder Cup at Hazeltine National Golf Club in Minnesota. What a week it was. The U.S. took back the Ryder Cup in dominant fashion, defeating Europe 17 to 11. The U.S. side won five of the final six matches in Sunday singles. It was the largest margin of victory for Team USA in the Ryder Cup since 1981. Chandler Withington was the head golf professional at Hazentine National Golf Club back in 2016 and he was part of a larger squad that supported members of Team USA. He analysed player data and helped develop strategies for how to set up Hazeltine in ways that would most benefit the American side. And in December, Chandler launched a new company called Archive 22. He creates images from scratch without tracing that capture the history of the game. His drawings include logos from every U.S. Open venue, and he's working on more posters that include the PGA Championship, Open Championship, and Ryder Cup. We're pleased to be joined now by Chandler Withington. And Chandler, you've held the head pro job at a famous golf course like Hazeltine National. Now you've launched your own design business that's much more artistic than, than golf-related. What was that transition like for you, and is this something you'd always had in the back of your head that you wanted to do? Yeah, guys, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Um, the transition, I think like a lot of people over the last two or three years, uh, people who've gone from working in office to working at home, uh, life's a little different now. Um, our daily life looks a little different. Um, you know, I put on a collared shirt for you guys today, but so many of mine have dust on it. Uh, I work in t-shirt and sweatpants and slippers and uh, I share an office space with Barbie dolls and uh, toddlers. But um we're overcoming the challenges. Um, is this something I always had in mind? Uh, not at all. I've, yeah, I mean, I think when I saw you at the Ryder Cup in 21 at uh, Whistling Straits, I'd just come off uh, leaving the job at Hazeltine and 
I wasn't sure what I was going to pursue next, but I don't think what I'm doing right now was even in the top 50, but um, it's come along. I think, you know, shortly after I saw you, uh, Shane Ryan wrote an article on my artwork and put it in Golf Digest. And once that came out, I started getting some calls and, and some people in my life started pushing me towards uh, what we're doing right now. So um, I think it kind of uh, what we're doing right now kind of feels like going to Q school. Uh, we're betting on ourselves. There's no guarantee of, of what's going to happen next. Uh, we've got to earn every little bit. And um, where we're at right now as a business, I'm just trying to make it through stage one qualifying right now. Well, you've been in golf for such a long time. You were a caddy as a teenager. But where did art come into the picture? Were you artistic as a child, for example? Yeah, Damon, I, I, my first dream really growing up was I wanted to be an architect. And uh, I don't know if you two can remember when you're about to graduate high school and your guidance counselor says, well, what do you want to be? I, my answer was clear for years. I want to be an architect. But um, the reality kind of set in. I didn't have the grades to pursue that as a high threshold. And um, my, my second dream was to become a golf pro. And you know, for the last 25 years, I've been chasing after that. And, and I wouldn't change anything. I've, I've had a blessed road. Um, but architecture was something I wanted to do as a kid. So you know, maybe I just kind of unearthed something that um, was a childhood dream. Um, I was started doing it four years ago just to kind of get through winters here in Minnesota. Um, they're dark, cold, and, and long, and uh, it was just a way of kind of getting through the winter. But that's where it all kind of started as a kid. It's it's uh, was my first dream. Well, the pieces are all bright and beautiful. I'm just curious, you know, hand-drawn, from scratch, no tracing. How long does it take for one of these pieces to be completed? Yeah, months. Um, I think when I started doing this back in 2019, that you know the piece that I started doing first, which was the history of the U.S. Open, I think you know it took three or four months to to really kind of put it all together, from drawing the logos to all the text and the print of the champions. But yeah, three or four months, uh, depending on how many how many hours in a day I have. Um, but it's a labor of love. Chandler, we can see some of the artwork on the wall behind you. There, both the the Open Championship. And then to the right, the Ryder Cup and all of the historic venues that have hosted those events. What is the process like to get the approvals from that when you go to these courses just to use their logo and that kind of artwork? How long does that process actually take? Yeah, well, I think when I started making these uh, three or four years ago, again, like I was making it just to put on my wall. I, I was looking for something that would initiate conversations on the history of the game and what I had in mind didn't exist. Um, so I went about just trying to make it for myself. But when we got to the end and I started making them and people started seeing them, they were asking me, where can we buy this? And I kind of did a, a gulp. I was like, look, guys, I can't sell this. Uh, all of this stuff on here doesn't belong to me. I have too much respect for the USGA, the PGA, the RNA to really do this without their permission. So um, the first stop, uh, really this first piece that we put out, which is the US Open, uh, first stop was to go back to my hometown. I grew up in Basking Ridge, which is the neighbor uh, town to Far Hills and the USGA, and went to them first, and thankfully they were on board. And uh, the next step was there's 51 clubs that their logos are featured on the artwork. Um, had to respectfully approach each one of them and say, look, this this belongs to every one of these clubs. It's really up to you uh, if we take this to the market. And I wasn't sure how that process would go. Uh, we started back in July with the US Open and uh, took about four months, but yeah, I mean, I think what we learned was, you know, a couple things. One, all these clubs are so proud of their association with whether it's the U.S. Open or the Ryder Cup or Open Championship, PGA, et cetera. Um, they're also proud of that association. And I think once they saw the artwork, they really saw it as a celebration of them. Um, so we're thankful to get all the U.S. Open clubs involved. We're getting really close with the PGA and, and hoping to have maybe the same success with uh, getting maybe a Ryder Cup or an Open Championship piece in the marketplace as well. 
What has the early response been in the marketplace, Chandler? I know you're going to be at the PGA Merchandise Show in a couple of weeks to try to meet with more vendors here, but what has the initial reception been like? Well, I think people hadn't seen anything like it before. Um, so I think there was that. I think uh, Mike Quirk from the PGA, who leads their merchandise team, is a friend. Uh, I think he summed it up really well. He said, you know, we've seen so many different uh, kinds of art in the golf world and in the sports world, but we've never really seen anything like this that really specifically goes after the history of the game. So I guess what I'm really just trying to do is offer a different perspective uh, when it comes to art and the things that people want to put on their walls. I think when people put things on their walls, it's it's maybe more of a reflection of uh, them or what they're proud of or maybe what they've accomplished and what they want to talk about. Um, look, Damon, I'm sure if I go into your office or your house, you've got that great Lee Bransky print from the Pure Insurance Championship. You know, you finished second there, right? So it's what are the things that people want to talk about? And for me, I've, working at places like Marion and Hazeltine, I was talking about the history of the game all the time. So again, when I created this, it was just more of a, I just want to talk about these things. Uh, I never really had it in mind that we would want to make a career, much less sell these things. So yeah, more of an accident than anything. Great point you make. I do have those photos proudly displayed <laughs> in my office. So Chandler, what's next for you? A different sport, other golf courses or organizations? Uh, what's coming up for Archive 22? Yeah, Damon, we just want to start in golf. It's it's the sport I'm most passionate about, most connected with, and uh, we wanted to hit that putt. And we weren't sure if, well, all these logo permissions, if this was going to happen or not. Um, but we got a break with the U.S. Open. Again, hope to have some more success with PGA Championship. I uh, hope to talk to the RNA about that. And again, the, the game of golf prepares us to play by the rules, and that's what this is in golf. Um, but to answer your question, uh, I'm passionate about some other sports. I'd, I'd love to get into hockey next, uh, maybe Major League Baseball and some of the other ones. But our brand is really built on history. We want to talk about history, and uh, so many sports have a unique story of history. Golf, I think, the most unique, so it's the most natural place for us to start. Well, Chandler, the artwork is absolutely stunning. Congratulations on Archive 22. We'll speak to you soon. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day.